a good day to be in the back seat. This is Carl Pulling, our 12th episode. Centennial episode. 12th centennial episode. Very and proud of the milestone we've achieved. Absolutely. 12 is a very important number. It's uh, the number of months in the year. It's the number of disciples that Jesus had. It's two sixes. It's four threes. It's yeah. also one twelve. That's a bunch of math that you're doing here, Hunter. And, yeah. Uh, I respect our audience's intelligence, but... You I always don't, want to help them out. I don't always respect yours, especially not this late. This was the latest ever recording of an episode of Carl Pooling. This is a late night Carl Pool special. We're taking a night drive around yeah. the city, and we have in the literal back seat with us a very special guest. Uh, me- ladies and gentlemen, introducing Second Lieutenant Benjamin Polk. Hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> Dude. It is really good to have a real person back there. We're I am stoked to, to be here. I yeah. think I've been a metaphorical listener from the back seat, but now I get to be a physical participant. Yeah, so we've actually had the pleasure of reading some of Ben's questions uh, to you guys on the air, and it just worked out where we could do this with him, and so we figured, why not? Let's let's bring someone in and have a good discussion about some of the awesome topics we love, so Absolutely. real excited for it. And, and like I mentioned on the show uh, last week, Ben is a complete, an utter idiot. Wow. Um, Dark. No. He, <laughs> he, he plays dumb. He is, he is super bright. He's one of, the, uh, one of the few people I know that I really respect how deep he thinks and he really pushes me. Thanks, So Chris. super happy to have him on the show. I said one of the few. I know. Man, <laughs> it's got to be, it's got to be hard for you, dude. It's so hard for You're me over here. You're so vain. Yeah. Um, anyhow. <laughs> And he's been doing some really cool research, some really cool study. So when we pitched him the idea of recording an episode of Carl Pulling, he instantly knew we wanted to talk about, which was super exciting for us. Yeah. And uh, couldn't be happier to have him on. Uh, This is going to be hopefully a regular segment going forward. We've already got a couple of other guests in the hopper. Very excited about that. And so, yeah. So let us know what you think. Send us an email. Send us a comment. And uh, we will get right into it. So, Ben, tell the, the people... A little bit about who you are, what you do, and uh, why you're here. All right. Well, I am currently a student in undergraduate pilot training. They call it UPT. Basically, I'm at Columbus Air Force Base in Mississippi, and I am learning how to fly planes right now uh, for the Air Force. And I should throw a disclaimer out there. Um, even though I'm in the Air Force, please connect absolutely nothing that we talk about today or ever talk about in any future episode with the Air Force. These are my opinions and mine alone. Just don't ever want that to get confused with me representing anyone that I'm not. So you're here on official airport business. <laughs> I said airport. <laughs> airport business. Airport Hunter, business. Hunter, if I told you that, I'd have to kill you. Oh, okay. So Fair enough. Yeah. I've actually always wanted to say that, and I still haven't gotten a good reason. So you're welcome. Thank you very much, Hunter. Well, yeah, let's call that a good reason. No, but yeah, the reason I um, was so excited to be on the show is you guys are tackling the questions that have been around literally since the dawn of time. Ever since there have been people walking around, we've been thinking these questions of what's real, what's God, how do we live with people around us, how do we be the best versions of ourselves that we can. And unfortunately, Mm. I think lately... Everyone's going to base everything they believe on something, whether they realize that or not, right? And lately, there seems to be this sad philosophical dogma that's taken over, 
where I believe that people think that they're not allowed to think about things much. They think there's too many scientists who have different opinions than them, so they can't have an opinion on science. There's too many philosophers who believe too many different things, so they can't have an opinion on philosophy. Mm. And what I love about what you guys are doing is you're encouraging people to think. And this is going to be a really loose quote, but in the words of G.K. Chesterton, if we don't have our own philosophy... We will be forced to live off the scraps of other people's. Sure, and I think you that's know, such a good quote. And that's that's kind of one of the one of the main impetuses behind the show. I mean, we started out in the first episode talking about why truth mattered and why truth was important, and right. and under we operate the show under the supposition that earnestly sought the truth can teach you things about reality as it exists and so that's that's one of the most important things and one of the things that's so insidious you know we talk about uh this nihilism this postmodernism mm-hmm. a lot and the reason that we talk about it is because it's self-replicating right if yes, you it, people, absolutely people use conversations to think a lot of people can't think on their own they have to rationalize out their opinion via conversation so when you get into this state where the overton window of what's what's available and permissible to be discussed and to be argued and debated shrinks you're not just taking people's ability to talk about those things away you're mm. ta- taking people's ability to think about those things away right. and so it's super important to to you and and obviously to us that we discuss everything yeah, yeah and before we get too into the conversation i just want to invite the listener and listener so look right at me wherever you are wherever you're sitting look right at me so you we can make sure you hear this. <laughs> hypothetically, if anything is true, hypothetically, if any of those weird religious people, if any of those atheists, if anything anyone has ever said is true, the most important thing you can ever do with your time on this planet is to figure out what is right and what is wrong, because that is how you will live the rest of this life. And if any religious person ever is right, that's how you will live the rest of eternity. So before we talk about what we're talking uh, tonight, I just wanted to lay a quick groundwork um, and say I support so much what Carl Pooling is doing just because you are encouraging people to ask those questions and to start thinking. And I know that both of you would rather have an audience that thinks for themselves than an unthinking audience who agrees with everything you agree. Am I right? Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, Ben, and uh, we'll have your $100 in a... Or a, a yellow manila envelope. Thanks for uh, stroking the old ego of the show there. Right that, at the that's, beginning. That's been Carl pulling. Thank you, everybody. Thank you guys for joining. Can you I can leave follow now? us on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> we'll wait till we slow down at least. Can yeah. I get out of the trunk? <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, but that's that's great, Ben. So uh, with that, I, I think that's a good preamble. Do you want to jump into what we're talking about tonight? Absolutely. So what we are going to be talking about tonight is truth itself. Hence that awesome lead-in. And I thought a great way to do that would be to lead off with the philosopher Plato. Now, in case you don't know too much about Plato, listener, I'm going to be using Plato and Socrates seemingly interchangeably. That's because Socrates never actually wrote anything down. Right. Okay? Right. Well, Socrates was illiterate. Oh, really? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that was way easier than it should have been. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So... Most of what we know about Socrates is via his work as captured by uh, predominantly Plato, actually. Correct. Absolutely. So we're going to be talking a little bit about 
Plato's theory of the forms. And to start Plato's theory of the forms, we thought that we would tell you a story. And if you have ever had a philosophy class, you've already heard this. It is the allegory of the cave from Plato's Republic spoken by Socrates. And it goes a little something like this. And guys, feel free to jump in here whenever you want. Yeah. So it goes like this. Imagine that your entire life you have been chained inside of a cave. You're unable to look around and you're facing a cave wall. You've never seen anything but that cave wall. And behind you there's a fire and every day objects are paraded in front of that fire and the shadows are cast onto the wall of the cave. Right, so so just to be clear, the fire's behind your back, you cannot turn your head to look at it, and the objects are passed between your back and the fire, so you get to see the shadows reflected on the cave wall. Cave exactly. Wall. Yeah. So Socrates basically says, if that had been your life, you would think those shadows are the real thing, because you've never seen anything else. You don't know anything other than the shadow of the thing itself, so right. you would think that that's real. Sure. So, hypothetically, one day, if you got out of your chains and you turned around, and when there's a box being paraded in front of the, the fire, and usually you see a square shadow, but that day you get to see an actual box. Interesting. Right. And it blows your mind. And right. And you're like, holy cow. And you see the fire, and you're like, what is that? And eventually, you're going to want to get out of that cave, right? Yes. So you start climbing your way out of the cave, and then the sunlight hits you. It's so bright, you can't even open your eyes. But one day, you get out of the cave, and you can actually look around and see real things. And you can see those, not the shadows of the things, but the things themselves, and eventually you can look at the sun. Right. Wow, okay. And then, let's, let's pretend there's more people trapped down there, right? Okay. And you, out of, out of altruism, you want to go down there and help those people out, so you go back into the cave and try to help those people. Those people are going to think you're crazy. Right, if you try to tell them, hey guys, what you're looking at on the wall actually isn't real. There's a whole world just 15 feet this way. If you'll just come <laughs> with me, nobody's going to buy into that. Right, Absolutely. they're going to think you're crazy. Okay, so in sure. Socrates' story, they, they kill the guy who made his way out of the cave. And that's kind of a fun metaphor for Socrates' own life. Interesting. In a lot of ways, yeah. So yeah. that's, that's the, the basic telling of his allegory of the caves, right? Um, which is is interesting because it uh, effectively to boil it down, the arguments that we're making there are that the the truth or what is real can be interacted with in a multiplicity of ways that yep. have a varying level of their actual proximity to what is real, to what the truth is. Yes. So that's one argument there, uh, as as I read it, and then the other argument there is that the truth when relayed to people who have not seen it sounds like heresy it sounds like madness sometimes right, right? Yeah. something like this that's why well it's eventually why Socrates himself died right yeah he yeah. kept asking people too many questions like he was literally <laughs> too irritating to deal with that's kind of what the apology winds up being is like he and then he refuses to like go back on what he's done and it's like that's why he dies it's not it basically it was a simple trial but he says no i'm gonna stick to my guns and fight for yeah. the truth and dies over it when he doesn't need to which is a pretty cool story but anyway i'm that's off topic so and that's awesome yeah. but what's so fun is to dig into this a little bit deeper because i think a lot of people read and they see that oh wow it's it's a metaphor for socrates how cool is that and then they sure. kind of stop there but sure. if we dig into this a little bit, we're going to get into Plato's, what he calls the theory of the forms. Yes. Right. 
Now, this, this is really fun. So remember when the guys were looking at the shadows, right? When they're seeing a shadow, they're literally seeing a shadow of something real. But when they turn around, he can see a real thing. Right. So that's what Plato's theory of the forms is. It's saying that right now, when we're seeing things, we're seeing a shadow of something. When we, when we see something red, we are relating to that to something that is supernatural, something outside of man. It's unchanging. There is a form of redness that exists outside of us and is eternal. Okay. Right. And a red object, when we think that it's red, it is relating to that redness. Right. Well, and so this is highlighted, right, in the even the way that we use our language. So if I use the word dog... What I'm doing is I I could be doing a, a one of a few things, but in its basic sense, just like I say, uh, I want a dog or I like dogs. What I'm doing there is I'm not actually referring to any specific dog, right? right. I'm referring with my language to a a extrapolated idea that represents a host of characteristics from multiple different dogs. So you take these things that we that we know about dogs and some of them can be physical characteristics like they typically have four legs and they have two eyes and they have ears and they're covered in fur, right? Yep. And this isn't true for every dog, but it's true for the majority of dogs. And we extrapolate from that idea and we wind up with something like archetypal dog. Right. So right? If, you're, if you're a little bit lost right now, this this is starting to get really heady. There's I think this is I, I was had this explained to me this way and this kinda helped me. I don't know if you've ever heard the description, uh, one of the descriptions for a human, but someone defined human as a featherless biped, right? Right. Let's ha. say you're walking through the woods, and you find a man with one leg, and you see that man. Are you going to assume that that is a human or not? Right. Of course, right? You're, Even you're, though he didn't fit the perfect description of being bipedal. Exactly. Even right. though he doesn't line up with exactly what we think a human is, we are relating what we think human is to something outside of ourselves. There's sure. some extraterrestrial, if you want to call it that. I, I like the word supernatural, right? Because it, it really is beyond the physical world. Something beyond the physical world, and we're relating what we think a man is to that. Right, exactly. And that's what Ben's saying when, you know, we're not actually seeing a red object. We're seeing an object representing the metaphysical red, right? And so... Uh, so, like, just to go back to the dogs, I can reference that when I say I like dogs, yeah. right? I'm not talking about a specific dog or a subset of dogs. I'm saying I like the abstracted metaphysical it that is dogs. Well, Chris, I have to jump in here because I think it's really important to key on. We're not saying we like cats. Yeah, yeah that's, and that's really super key. important. Yeah, that's super yeah. important. And uh, that's been Carl. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Cat people come at me. Uh, yeah, tweet at the blondest Ben. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, uh, right? But there's another thing I can do with my language too, right? I can say, oh, do you see that dog? So language is really interesting in that way because it can be used to refer to the archetypal abstraction of what dog is, and it can also be used to refer, refer to specific objects. So when we're talking about forms, there's kind of a taxonomy that's useful. Is like we can, use, we can use the word dog, which is like this linguistic tool that cuts dogs out, and then we can manipulate them linguistically so we can discuss them and share ideas about them, right? That's the word dog. So there's, there's verbal dog or linguistic dog, then there's object dog, which is the actual uh, representation, like one representation, an actual physical dog, and then there's archetypal extracted dog. 
Right. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I think one thing that's also kind of interesting and from like some of the what is God conversations we were talking about too is like um, if you're actually thinking about the image that is presented to these people in the hypothetical cave, right? It's a 2D image, right? Like yes. it, it doesn't have any mass. Oh, that's such a good point. Right. And yeah. so it's like one of the things that's really interesting is like the fact that they live in a world where they're they live in flatland essentially like and for, wow, for, yeah. for for all kind of like metaphorical purposes is you know they don't get to see anything that has i i guess maybe we can get into it but i mean like maybe these people have an idea about their own body and can see their own selves but maybe they can't maybe they just see things appearing in a 2d plane in and front i believe of them. just to support what you're saying i believe in the republic um the prisoners necks are broken so they can't look around at anything that sucks yeah they're they're bound okay so 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 if theoretically you were able to turn around and see this box not only is there like the horrible problem of like oh i've never seen this object before and it looks amazing you know what what am i supposed to do with it it's also constructed in such a way that makes no sense at all yeah like it's something you don't have the proper faculties to deal with which is in some ways, like like seeing God's face, right? It's like mm. you don't have the same ability wow. because, like, once once it happens, you actually don't have the like Moses. You don't have the actual mental capabilities to deal with it. Right. Mm. Well, and and part of it is too kind of like we talked about. Hunter is not a three dimensional body with two arms and, and two sure, legs, right? right? He is a fourth dimensional creature that's, that's yeah that parades itself throughout time, yeah. right? But when we see him, our senses are debilitated in such a way that we can't see the truth of what we're looking at yeah. we see a, a we see a cross section of that so in its very similar way these people in the cave their senses are somewhat uh physically locked into a lower dimension if you will so that's kind of an interesting absolutely yeah tangent. i don't even know if he knows that he's doing that but maybe he does you know like i, <laughs> I I've, I've read the allegory of the cave i don't think they ever talk about 3d space but maybe that wasn't necessarily a concept they were really fond of discussing at that point in right. time I also so it's like nah. so but it's there anyway let's let's get back on track sure uh, we'll, i definitely think we should come back there but yeah, let's ask sorry chris I, I was just gonna say so basically the arguments that we have are that there there's varying ways to interact with and interpret uh, different objects in reality. Mm -hmm. Some of them are more real than others. And when we use language to describe those different objects, we could be interacting with more a a more or less correct version of reality than is possible. And the reason Socrates gave the speech on the allegory of the case or gave this lesson is because he was saying that you can, there's a way in which to act, in which you can get closer to to seeing and then speaking about the the truth of reality, the actual representation of reality, and that would be this idea of forms. Yes. And he used the caves to to highlight that. And then, as far as forms are concerned, just to make sure everyone's with us, we've got you know, we we you can just think of linguistic dog, object dog abstraction dog right as kind of this hierarchy but socrates even took it to farther than abstraction dog like it was like perfect dog like like it almost starts sounding aristotelian at some point sure well yes yeah yeah eventually you get to eventually you get when i say abstraction dog i'm talking about um, archetypal or, or ideal dog right i think the i think the difference too between 
this there's a great image and I was trying to find it today and I, I didn't have the time to but it has Plato it's a renaissance painting it has Plato and Aristotle talking and Plato is pointing up at the sky and, yes. or maybe it's Socrates I think it's, it's Socrates it, yeah. it probably is and Aristotle is like pointing out of the ground and yep. it's like it's like the perfect encompassing of their philosophies is like Socrates is like there's this whole fo- forms of the perfect thing and that's beyond us and Aristotle's like no it's the world of man and the things yes. we see and the materials it's and those right can... over there dummy right oh, exactly <laughs> like there's the chair stop talking about the <laughs> form chair alright so we've got some tools in our toolkit Absolutely. now Ben go ahead so here's where it starts getting really fun because up to this point you're probably thinking I mean oh that's interesting right yeah but this is when it starts getting really interesting when we start to think about the sun in the allegory of the cave Sure. What enables our uh, pretend friend here, who, who just walked out of the cave, what enables him to see forms? Light. Light, right? Yeah. The sun is the embodiment of truth. The sun is the form, to use the word that we've been rolling with here, of truth. The sun is the archetype of good. In the, in the story, because mm-hmm. it, it even goes into mention that there's light that's cast from the fire, but it's it's sufficient to reveal these objects in their full context and their yep. full detail and their full resolution, right? So once you get out into the back then, what was truly the brightest light, uh, which that's was the sun, then you start to see objects more for what they really are, right? Something like that. So go ahead. Yeah. So where this started starts to blow my mind is we have Socrates, a dude who lived over 300 years um, before Christianity came around and and thousands of years before Islam came around. Um, The only monotheistic religion at the time, in fact, was Judaism. And yet we find a philosopher using only logic saying that there exists a form of truth that is eternal and unchanging. That governs everything that we believe I mean, call that whatever you want. I call that God. I call that a deity. Sure. And it's a decent argument to make, right? That that is, that is the, that is what we would consider God. It's yes. this thing that reveals the, not the, the truth of reality as such, but the truth behind the reality, right? Like when we talk about the, the multi the multi layers of truth that there are some truths that are historical but some truths that run deeper than that we you know we've talked about before the story of Romeo and Juliet is the story of Romeo and Juliet true well it depends on what you mean by true historically it no it's not true it's a work of fiction right but as far as the interactions of the characters and the humanity of the characters it might be more true than any historical story because what it does is it takes little pieces of the behaviors of many different people abstracts them and concatenates them into one tale and so the the behaviors of the characters and the humanity seen therein become something that is more true than any individual telling yes. of a historical and, story. And Chris, right? I want to give a little bridge to where you just got, because I think where you just got is huge, and it's absolutely right. Sure. Um, but when we start talking about forms, what I love is form starts to become a synonym for archetype. If, if you haven't heard sure. the term archetype much, it basically means form, right? So when we're saying there is a form of dog, we're also saying there is a form of manliness. There is a form of womanliness. There is a form of how to live. Right. So out there, there exists a way that we ought to live that is outside of us and objective and unchanging. 
and, and I'm not saying there's no room for nuance. And, and it, what's wonderful about this, if you go back to the earliest story that humans ever told, the Illuminesh, right? Uh, the Su ancient Sumerian creation myth that uh, is very closely linked to the biblical creation myth. Um, yeah, who doesn't read that? Right, everyone's heard of it. Right. But, but the thing about it is, what was happening in ancient Samaria at that time is there was a bunch of different tribes, they had a bunch of different gods, and when they, when they, they would war with each other, right, these different tribes, and whoever would win the war, their god would be the supreme god, right? And then what they did is they stopped warring, they started making peace, and they would come together and they would tell stories about their various gods. And what they did was they developed this pantheon of different gods, right? But then there was one god in particular that, that wasn't owned by any particular tribe, but what happened was they, they, the stories and the attributes of the different gods, the things that they had in common as you looked at more and more gods and you abstracted certain characteristics that repeated themselves more and more, they created this type of ideal god, right? Oh. His name was Marduk. And so Marduk is the great creator of the world that interacted with the, the basically the void and the chaos and the order nascent at the beginning of creation in the Illuminash, I'm skipping over a lot, but <laughs> effectively, here's what's so cool about what Ben is saying, is that the this god was created out of an abstraction of the different gods with their various qualities, and his most important qualities were, were twofold. One, that he had eyes all the way around his head so he could pay attention to what was going on, so that he could see right? Just like in the allegory of the caves, the sun lets you see, and it lets you see things for what they really are. Uh, uh, Marduk had eyes all the way around his head so that he could take in the reality around him, right? And the second one is he could speak. He could speak magic words, which is very similar to the creation myth where God speaks things into existence, right? Yeah. And so in the biblical account. So, so he could see the truth, and then he could speak the truth, which is super important. And he was, because he could see and he could speak, he was the revealer of truth. So this idea that Ben says that that which is revealing the truth to us being the archetypal son isn't just an idea. It's actually where the oldest stories that man has ever told uh, uh, get their deity from. That's how they define the divine in those stories, is that which reveals truth, which is super yeah. cool. So it's not just theory. There's actually some of this seen in practice. So I, w I want to take it back to what Ben was originally talking about, because Socrates doesn't has never read the Illuminesh. Um, and you know he, he doesn't you don't know that I, I kind of do so. uh, you know he was and, illiterate and I think I think that's I think that's really cool because it kind of talks more about the bedrock of human nature underneath everything and I think that's really interesting but the thing that I think that Ben said that I haven't really thought about before is like the environment in which Socrates is speaking this and mm. like one thing I, I I like a lot is I like myth uh, I know a good bit of myth and you know I've definitely read my fair share of Greek uh, myths and um, one thing that's really interesting to me is that Socrates comes from you know there's a pantheon there's a lot of them and they are very of, different of gods of gods yeah, yeah exactly and so like like in the Odyssey for example like there's a lot of gods and a lot of gods don't necessarily want Odysseus to come back home you know and they're fighting and warring and Athena is fighting alongside him to make things happen but 
still things aren't necessarily working out for him, and Athena isn't all-powerful, nor does she know everything that needs to happen. In fact, Odysseus actually has a couple conversations with her along the way and proves her to be wrong. And the wow. thing that's really interesting about that is that's the culture surrounding the conversation that Socrates is having. Yes. And so the it's something like this. They're still having the war that Christopher's talking about in the Illuminatian Greek society. Right. We don't yeah. have the proper yes. one. Yes, there's Zeus, but guess what, guys? Zeus gets a lot of things wrong, and Zeus spends a lot of his time, like, sleeping with everything that moves in a different <laughs> bodily form. Yeah, and it doesn't work out well for him all the time. No, it doesn't work out well. And sometimes he, his children fight amongst themselves. They come to war against him. Like, the Titans are a thing, you know? And so my, my point saying is, like, it's not like Zeus has everything figured out yeah. and is in charge of everything. Right. And you would kind of say this, Zeus is not the proper form of God. Yes. Right. And Bonner, that's, I'm so glad you're saying that. Yeah. Even in that environment, that's what's so interesting. Even yes. in that environment, Socrates comes to this conclusion. Comes to the conclusion which makes the apology that even is more relevant. Yeah. It's like, no. No, no doubt this guy pissed people off. Like, right. No doubt he yeah. got them mad because he's yeah. coming to this conclusion in a culture that doesn't agree with him at all. Absolutely. And that's awesome. That's that's why they killed Socrates. Right. Like, they killed him because of his stance on things exactly like this. And what's really interesting is certain, some atheist philosophers champion Socrates, and some think he's just the worst. It's really <laughs> a love it or hate it. Um, if you research what Socrates believed on God, you'll get people saying every which thing. But the thing we can be certain of, because of exactly what you're saying, Hunter, he did not believe in the pantheon of gods because they disagreed with each other. Exactly what you're saying. He believed in one singular truth that was out there. And if there was one singular thing that was true, it definitely wasn't Zeus because he screwed up. And it definitely wasn't any other of the gods because well, he they were screwed up, he screwed down, he screwed side. He basically <laughs> just screwed up. He screwed like a goose. He screwed so, like a bull. So what becomes so interesting about the allegory of the cave and the theory of the forms mm. is that they seem to advocate a monotheistic deity. Right. Like, that's right. ridiculous. In a time period, we have no evidence that Plato or Socrates ever met a Jew. And Jews were the only ones repping a monotheistic god at the time. And even now, there are only three. And two of them don't eat bacon. There we go. <laughs> so, guys. I so, guys. So, we know the right one, then. That's also interesting because one of the things, too, is like, so why, one of the things, you know, a lot of people ask Socrates throughout his life, why do you do the things you do, Mr. Socrates? And he says that there, that, you know, there was an oracle that told him to obey the voice that was inside of him, essentially. Oh, yes. And so that's really interesting because now that even asks a more interesting question is what was that voice? You know, what was the so thing true. that kind of directed him? And yeah, I, I don't want to theorize there too much, but I think you can kind of see the implications that arise from that that are very interesting. And what brings that back to actually the very beginning of the show is the oracle had a reason that she said that Socrates was the wisest man. And that was because he didn't pretend to know everything. He was the only person at the time who would admit that he didn't know. He went to all these great philosophers and teachers at the time, and he realized that they all don't know as much as they think they do, which is how we get back here. And we just are imploring each other and everyone listening, think, right. search desperately for what is true, because yeah. there is nothing more important 
Yeah, and, and see, I want to take it one step further before we quit, though. You know, the thing. So Socrates. Oh, are we gonna quit? Oh, I thought we were just we're gonna keep going all night. We never have to quit. Okay. Um, I, I meant specifically before we quit this line of questioning. Um, <laughs> so what's so wonderful about this is that Socrates realized that he didn't know everything, and he also realized that the there was a form, an abstraction, an ideal of the thing that which reveals truth, hmm. right? And uh, in a similar but different philosophy, you can say that this is the unmoved mover, yep. right? Uh, Socrates realized that there was a thing that existed in truth and was truth and and showed truth wherever it shined. It's, it's a huge idea, and it's not... It's not obvious that he even knew everything that he was saying when he said this, right? Mm -hmm. As he goes to talk about not just the sun, but the the form that the sun is a reflection of, right? Yeah. And so here's the other thing. If you put those two together, where you can get to is this. Yes, you can, you can see you can you can use the sun and see the sun and use its ability to define and learn about the truth of the objects around you right and the forms around you but also this that you can go back into the cave afterward you can go back into the cave and you can speak the truth as well and what are you doing when you speak the truth well, he realized quite correctly that some men would hate you for it, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And that's super important, but that's not really what I want to get at. What I want to get at is he realized that just like the fire was a poor reflection of the same form, the same truth-revealing form of the sun, right? That he, in his own power, if he, if he sought the truth earnestly and attempted to share the truth and speak the truth, he too could be a dim repli replication of that form. He could be the one that shines light. Not not the perfect light, but he could be a representation of that ideal yes. as well. And if you are a representation of that ideal, this is why what Ben said is so killer, if you're a representation of that ideal, the first step is admitting that you are not the ideal. Right. Right? Critical. Mm. Or so, you've already, you've already so made a mistake. So much humility. Yeah. Right. Past, yeah. And, and, that's, and that's why we're so terrified of postmodernism, guys. <laughs> <laughs> right, for real? It's because exactly what you're getting at, Chris, in, in a way it's making you God, which sure. is what's so scary about it because it's saying there is no objective truth. And you hear verbiage get thrown around all the time, you know, my truth, your truth, our truth. I don't believe in that. I believe in the truth, right? If you're saying something, you're either right or wrong. And right. it's so sad that we've gotten to this realm of your truth because now no one can make objective statements about anything. Sure. Nothing can be right or wrong anymore, and we're really slipping into that. Yeah, we might need to like get out the pipe and smoke it, but I think we should actually <laughs> pursue that for a second. Let's do um, it. The, I don't think this is any more apparent than in the realm of beauty. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Yeah? That is such a cool one because... Um, oh man, if, if you have time, go read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. He tackles this really well. Um, but all the time you hear people say, whenever I talk about there being objective truth, the very first objection I always get is in the realm of beauty, right? People say, well, I like this music, or you like this music. I like this painting, or you like this painting. 
but that presupposes that beauty is completely subjective. And this is probably going to sound wacky to anyone listening, but I really believe there is a huge objective component to beauty. A, go, go on Google and try to research a little bit about a chord structure and how the resonance of individual notes fit together perfectly to form a chord. We don't just think chords sound good because that's what humans like. It's a physical thing that happens with the wave properties of the sound. It, it's so amazing. When you when you talk about like a 135 chord, which is your typical, you know, C G chord, what what happens there is so wonderful is that the hertz rate, which is the frequency at which the peaks pass by the listener of that noise. Uh, they line up in such a way that they have a certain type of resonance, a harmonic to them where the peaks line up at certain intervals, right? This is what happens when we make a chord. What's so strange is those chords sound pleasing to our ear. And you can't exactly put your finger on why. They're mm. much more pleasing than a dissonant note, right? And so you you ask yourself, why is that? And, then and before you continue, I just want to jump in. And if you're thinking, well, what about the visual realm? There would be no reason for painters' classes if that right. was the case. Oh, sure. There would be no f- rules of photography, and yet we find tons. You have Please things continue. like the golden ratio, right, or the golden triangle. Yeah, uh, that is a is a mathematically perfect and, and aesthetically sepia. way to sepia. <laughs> you have the lark filter for Instagram <laughs> if you're pasty and pale like Ben and I. Um, what? Yeah, you heard me. Uh, so anyway, what's happening is that there's this. There's physics in the world, right? And I, I don't, I'm not going to make a perfect argument for this right now because it takes a minute. But, but mathematics is an abstraction of the realities of physics. Uh, you, everything that we, that we say when we're discussing math, the numbers are representations that were originally abstracted from truths about physical objects, right? If I have two apples and I take one away, then I have one apple left. Right, or if I take, if I have two apples and I throw one in the river, I have one apple left. Well, that's we, your truth. <laughs> that is, yeah. It, it should be all of our truth. Otherwise, you're not good at throwing apples in rivers or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but the point is that that physics, the actual physical realm, and the laws that govern the physical realm make up the the rules of mathematics. The rules of mathematics and chord structure are perfect. The the way that the the lower notes are perfectly bisected into by the higher notes on the chord structure is something of a a magical cacophony and then you ask yourself this question why is that note pleasing why is that sound pleasing we know that they line up perfectly mathematically which is an extraction from physics right so the physical environment that we find ourselves in seems to marry up these sounds but why are they nice to the ear there's something missing. If, you're, if, you're, hmm. if your Dang, answer man. to that question is simply uh, because they hum, they, because they vibrate, that's not enough. It, it, doesn't explain, it doesn't explain perfectly why we see this perfect marriage between what sounds pleasing to us in this intrinsic, unaccessible way and what lines up perfectly with the truth and the beauty of physics and reality as such. That so I, I hope bit. you guys all like took a hit when I said get the pipe out. <laughs> but it's but just saying we like vibrations isn't enough. It isn't enough. There's also been some really cool uh, demonstrations where people know pentatonic scales without you having to teach them pentatonic scales. It's wonderful. Anyhow, and this is this is slightly depressing, but one of the one of the factors of uh, one of the ways people can 
know quickly uh, one of the early signs of autism in, or slight degrees of autism is not being able to mirror pitch. And wow. so because oh, it's very interesting because it's like, I, I don't know exactly what that means, but it's, it's like, there's a part of you that's not tuned into the thing that's going on in music. And I think there's probably some more, um, like cognitive skills that are lacking there that probably explain that. But it's interesting to know that that's true. And that like, you know, there's, part of the game there that human beings are playing by singing music together that is you know requires a different level of intelligence to be a part of which is bizarre that that's true i think the other part of this that it gets kind of strange too is like the fact that narrative and we talked a lot about this but this is kind of like where i live is like you can tell the wrong story you know you can absolutely tell an incorrect story or a bad story or a story that doesn't seem to line up with reality and that to me like that's even more strange than music because there is no math to put that together sure like there That's is so true yeah like there's it's there's no i haven't seen it i know you can get enough monkeys in a room and you can type out shakespeare but my point is like th there's no way to get that proper set of words that proper set of uh emotions the proper set of life experiences and compile that all together into a way that actually means something to people but you probably spent hundreds and thousands of dollars to watch movies and I don't think you have a good explanation as to why. And if you do, I'd like to know because I want to know why I've lost so much money. So, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, yeah it's, I, I think, uh, I think it's obvious that there is something that matters there. And it's not, it's not clear at all why we spend so much time uh, trying to understand, or being a part of it, like listening to music listening to stories, looking at art, listening to good ideas, talking about good ideas. It's not really clear what it is we're doing. Engaging with the idea of beauty. Yeah. Right? And it's to your point, it's not clear what that means. Mm, no. Uh, but here's, here's what is clear, is that we live in a culture now that rejects, to a certain extent, the standards of beauty and the, sub yep. the, the non-subjective, objective reality that it exists. Um, I, was, I was on a radio station back in the day got my start on terrestrial radio doing a few talk shows and I also did some music rotations and uh, on one of those music rotations uh, w there was a, a genre called atmospherics noise and experimental right atmospherics was actually wonderful a lot of the times these people would make these wonderful soundscapes what was consistent about them is that they they were in conversation with the laws of chord progression and uh, music theory and the and key and these different elements that are required to make a song sound cohesive right the same reason it sounds bad when your uncle gets drunk and sings at christmas is the same reason that some songs sound crappy uh, or would sound crappy if they switched keys uh, in a random and uh, non-intentional way i thought it was the tequila <laughs> tequila dun, 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 dun. okay so anyway um but but there was this noise genre that was also part of it, right? And we would get individual artists. They would send us in tracks and stuff. And this guy sent us in a, a track from his band, quote, unquote. And it was five minutes of static noise, white static noise. And it, then it used a bunch of profanity. But near the end, at about four and a half minutes, it, uh, uh, it used the F word. I'll just fill in for it. But this guy just just comes on and starts screaming gutturally, F God, F God, F God, F the idea of Christ, F God. And that was music. 
the thing, it, it was not beautiful. It was actually, like, it was madness. It was terrifying in a way. It was, it was like looking in the window of the mind of an insane person. It was like spending a night in the asylum. It was really strange because there was no conversation between that and the standard of beauty mm. that's been set out and that we have agreed upon as a, as a collective spirit that we enjoy and that is pleasurable. Yeah. And, I think and then just... it was so clear, right? It was so clear that, yeah, of course, if, if there is no objective reality to the standards of beauty yeah. for you, then your message is going to be F God. Of course yeah. it is. It was such a clear picture, but such a strange one, you know? And uh, I think what makes the case so incredibly compelling um, and, and valid is the pervasiveness of it. Right. Because yes. let's look at a time when objective truth was just assumed, right? Let's go, let's go 500 years ago. Show me the greatest paintings. Let's go 400 years ago. What did music sound like? It, they were incredible, incredible works of art. Uh, maybe you don't even like... Maybe you don't like music from 500 years ago. Maybe you don't like paintings from 500 years ago. But the objective skill that went into it, the talent behind everything, and as culture has slowly started embracing nihilism and embracing this post-truth, you hear that all the time now, this post-truth narrative, you can go to a modern art museum and see a white canvas, and that's considered art. Yeah. Listen I, I to went the to a top modern art, 40. I went to a modern art museum in... Uh, in uh, Paris, and there was the word Nazi written on red uh, in red paint on a porcelain toilet, and it was on a it was on a center it was the centerpiece of a room. It was sitting on a pedestal of its own, and I was I was like, in what world? What what conversation is this deriving out oh, of cool. or joining? Yes. You know, me and uh, I was recently having a conversation with my roommate about this because he was saying, no, I, I think liking music is subjective, and he said. Because what if I really like death metal and you really like classical? Like, is one of us right and one of us wrong? And I said, you're thinking about it linearly. Imagine that truth is in the center, and you're on one end of a ball and I'm on the other end of the ball. We can be equidistant from the center of that ball, right? Even though we're on completely different ends of the spectrum, we're equidistant from the ball. Sure. Which I, or the center of the ball, which I think is super fascinating. I, I, think, I think sometimes people look at genre... Is like that how that conversation starts, and that's a really wrong place to start hmm. because, like, it's the measure of art is not the measure necessarily of s the skill needed to reproduce it, and it's not necessarily the measure of the um, the way it is or the type. It's adherence to a certain set of rigid rules, yes. kind of right. But it's it's more about the expression. I would say I think I think proper art expresses the human condition pro perfectly wow. in whatever form that is, right. and I think the best art takes it to the furthest realm possible, which is the archetypical. And, and see, well, here's uh, yes, I agree. And you, don't, you don't need to you you don't need a certain type of painting style to do that. Yes, well, absolutely. I agree with you, but here's the difference. There's actually there's actually these grand traditions and contexts that come from the styles, right? And they're important because I play, you know, I play in a little bit of a rock group and I have one song that uses an out of key chromatic um, note in it and it's incredibly incredibly dissonant. I play it in a full chord on a distorted guitar and it's noisy and it doesn't sound good, but right after and right before it, I play the uh, the uh, minor 
the minor, uh, uh, what is it? I guess it's the minor third. And then I play the perfect fifth of my root chord, right? Yes. Here's the thing. Because my song is in... Co- the, the note is dissonant on purpose. It's a sad song, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a, a song that, that when I was writing it, I didn't know what the next best thing to do was. I didn't know what my ne- next step took like. And the chaos in the dissonant chord was the chaos that I was feeling. But it means nothing without the context of the mean. It means nothing without the context of the tradition. It means nothing without the objective standard of beauty being present in the right. song, right? Yes. It, so, yes, there's not an adhe- the, uh, adherence to a certain set of rules doesn't, doesn't make art good or bad. But if you deny the fact that there is a standard, that yep. there is an objective beauty, then you cannot use even deviations away from those rules that would govern that to make your point and belay the human condition via a different means. But what you said isn't locked to country music or death right. metal music. Not it's, at all. Yeah, that's, and that, that, that's all I'm trying to say. Not at all. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. But but that's one of the same ways where you can actually use these different vibrations that occur in your ears to elucidate the fact that there's objective standards and maybe you're not even meeting them so, and maybe that's mm. the point so right I, yeah and i think i think this is the the other cool thing is like given a culture where everything's warring and fighting and tearing it apart if you say there's only one truth you're eaten alive because you can't be there absolutely if you live in a culture or a place that allows the fight to happen and allows the ideas to clash together and thinks there must be one proper way for us to handle things at the bottom of this, that culture allows the truth to come to fruition and purpose and exist almost. Mm. Sure. And that is freedom of speech. In a lot of ways, yes. Yes. Kind of like we were saying at the beginning of the conversation, I'll also be quick and then I want to hear from Ben, but the, like we were saying at the beginning of a conversation, this this nihilism is self-replicating. Yes. If you prevent, if you prevent the ability to speak, you prevent the ability to think and the, the ideology that is buttressed by people not thinking for themselves will prevail. That's why that goes hand in hand is because once you give into that, the proper thing to do is to take away the, the ability for people to talk about what matters and, and and have their own ideas about the universe. Because once that's taken away, they can no longer try to figure out what the proper thing is. And the proper thing just sort of arises because it's the proper thing. And so it's like, if you, if you're going to, play games like that then you take away the then you have to take away the people's ability to do that and i think that's why you see so much like uh hate speech in certain cultures i think that's why in like communism regimes you see you know like gestapo well that's nazism but but you get what i'm saying is like you people actually policing the content of what yeah. you're allowed to say because it's like it, it, that's exactly what you have to do if you're not doing the proper thing then you have to stop people from finding it out yeah mm. absolutely so, so linking, you know, kind of linking this back yeah. a little bit to what we were talking about. Um, there, in a culture where everything is considered subjective, we don't even have a strong appreciation for how much the physical reality of the world that we find ourselves existing in dictates uh, the dictates the meaning of those subjective uh, viewpoints, yeah. right? And so, just like Socrates, in a world where and in a context where there was a pantheon of different gods pulled in different directions uh, with their own problems, theorized that there was a ultimate archetypal truth 
that could be ascertained and then reflected. Uh, I love the way that fits onto the Illuminish. Yeah. Uh, there, there is a there is a sickness in our culture at the moment where we reject that idea. It's amazing that we think that these people who have four-year degrees or have taken some some writing classes had better ideas than Socrates had. I mean, the <laughs> insane, the insane, insipid uh, pride in our culture is insane. Uh, it just it, it it boggles the mind in a lot of ways. Uh, how, like we were talking about Socrates earlier, the lack of humility, right, that mm. exists in this idea that you can you can be the arbiter of truth as you see fit. And so then that's why, you know, very, fairly recently you have genres of music like noise. That's why you have, you know, brutalism and you have postmodern... Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> I meant visual arts. But, oh. But that doesn't mean that, the, that doesn't mean that, that like brutalism is bad or postmodern humor, for instance, is bad. It just, it, it actually loses its context though if you take it without its without the context of the mean without the context of the bedrock right right because like walter white Mm. is a compelling story because it operates in a universe where being good actually would have done more good for walter sure like that like it, it deals with him being dishonest properly and like if you're just gonna have static noise and yell you know horrible obscenities about god then you're not playing properly because you get away with that scot-free Sure. You know, yeah. so anyway. And what we haven't done tonight is kind of talk about the people who disagree with us right now. Yeah. Um, so before you. we close out, we should probably throw out at least a couple names to get people to um, at least start looking into this. If anyone wants to find the people who are smart and disagree with us very much so. Uh, people like Sam Harris. Yep. You know, he's not yeah. going to... While he believes that things are kind of right and wrong, he believes that's kind of subjective based on what's good for humans, and he doesn't really define what's good for humans. But I don't want to mischaracterize his argument too much because I'm sure he would profoundly disagree with what I just said. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Sam's complicated, but he is. I, I think he does this. Uh, he, mm, I don't know. I don't know if he would agree with everything we said. I think it would be a complicated discussion with Sam about where we disagree. That, yeah, that would be a fun one. Yeah. But, but maybe to put, yeah, definitely look into look into. He Sam wouldn't Harris. believe in this God thing, though. No, he's not <laughs> That's for sure. But, but let's okay. Maybe this is where we stop then. Yeah. Let's let's get here at least. Yeah, yeah. Like we said about Socrates, to understand that you didn't know everything, but that there was something that could reveal the truth, uh-huh. right? You had to accept that you were not the unmoved mover, mm, that you yes, were moved, absolutely. right? Yes. If you believe in the in terms like my truth and your truth and uh, these subjective measures of what is real in the universe as such, what are you actually doing? What are you actually arguing when you say that? You're saying that, you know, the Aristotelian good is that which is suited to its purpose. So in the Bible, a lot of times, uh, written contemporaneously with Aristotle in a lot of ways, uh, a little bit, it it depends on what book you're talking about, right? Uh, New Testament, obviously, what I'm discussing here. So anyway, when it says God is good, right, it's not saying that God is, is, we're not mapping a humanistic code of morality onto the infinite. What it's saying is that he's perfectly suited to his purpose. Right. He is good because he is. And that's why even back in the Old Testament, when when Moses said, what do I call you? I am. That's mm-hmm. enough. I am. The end. He's good. He's perfectly suited to his purpose. 
if I get to subjectively define the reality of nature based on what is good for me or what I think is good, then, and what I'm doing there is I'm actually denying that objective reality exists and I'm denying the fact that there is a source from which objective reality can be revealed. I am saying in my heart, I am the unmoved mover. Yeah. And keep, I am the Aristotelian good. And keep in mind, at no point in this episode have any single one of us went off on a rant about Jesus. Have, have no point have we said, this is what you're supposed to believe. We haven't quoted the Bible. Well, Christopher just did. Okay, but, until the very end. Yes, but I, I misquoted. But it was an it was an example. It wasn't the argument. Yes, sure. yes, yes. But yes. what we're saying here is truth exists, and and too often when I talk to people about this, I get a ton of people who start to mischaracterize the argument immediately, and they think I'm trying to preach Christianity or whatever they think I believe. Yeah, um, and that is a good point. Yeah, for anyone listening. The only argument that we are trying to, to hammer in tonight is that truth is real. Sure. <laughs> and, and if you disagree, understand that you are, you're not denying the existence of an unmoved mover in the universe. You're saying it's you. Yeah. Yeah. I, there was a really interesting um, apologist who he, he was talking to someone and the guy said, uh, I don't believe in the laws of logic. I think they're wrong. And the apologist responded, so you believe in the laws of logic? And the guy said, no, I don't. I think they're wrong. And he said, so you believe in the laws of logic? <laughs> and the guy said, no, I believe they're wrong. And you probably see where this is going. Is in order to, if you want to definitively make the statement that there is no objective truth, that in itself is an objective truth. The best you can do and what C.S. Lewis would call the most manly thing that you can do is to say, eh, there's really no way for us to know. And if you want to live your life in the, eh, there's really no way for us to know if anything is real. That sounds like a really depressing way to live your life, man. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's honest. I like, I, you know, like, I have more respect for people that do that than do than than say there is no truth. Absolutely. Like, like uh, you always enjoy your conversations with agnostics more than atheists. True. Yeah. Like, if 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 the answer is there's no way for, there's no way for us to really know and there's no way for us to really understand what's at the heart of things and it's just too big of a problem that seems so much more right to me than you know that there isn't anything out there sure. so anyway and it's it's baked in right it's yeah. baked into the to the the, the postmodern ethos asks. of the day it's baked in right you know there is no grand narrative and the, and yet here's a grand narrative. Yeah, Everything that's, is separated that's by power what structure. Is so subversive and hilarious, yeah. right? Is uh, that they're preaching to you? There's there's no structure to life, and, and that is the structure that they are handing these right, college kids right. who are just taking it and running with it. And, and that's where I think Sam specifically gets tripped up. Like, right. and and this is probably a good place to close. But, um, you know, when he says, when he says there is no there is no higher power granting morality, then you become the power granting morality. Right, the morality is subjective to you. You can't deny, you can't deny the divinity of the individual. You can't deny the divinity of logos and word. You can simply assign where you decide to believe it rests. Does it rest above you, or does it rest in your in your own tongue? And I would just love to take a quick blurb to defend Sam Harris, um, because what what he would say to that is he says, "No, I don't get to define morality." The betterment of humanity is what defines morality, and I think C.S. Lewis uh, did a pretty good job. Then define that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's a huge one. But he also said, um, 
this kind of gets into the law, right? Because he's saying, well, there's a law of how humans behave. Sure. Um, and this is what I think is a really fun example. All the laws of nature, the laws of physics, the laws um, that we've been talking about tonight. Let's take the law of gravity. When an apple wants to fall off a tree, an apple doesn't consider falling because the law of gravity says it's probably a good idea for you to... No, the apple falls. But in humans, we see a really interesting thing. We have a law of human nature built into us that Sam Harris acknowledges, and yet we have an ought. Hmm. We don't have a must Right. If humans had to behave morally all the time, we'd have a pretty boring civilization. I think we can all agree. But you see a very uniquely divine thing in humans where we can see what we are supposed to do, and yet we can choose to not do it. I think. Yeah. I think we'd go. I think, given it, living in a perfect society, we all know the first thing we do is try to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and yeah. and that's the fallen nature of humanity. Uh, and also the divinity of our own logos at work, right? Love it. And so, uh, so yeah, that's the that's the plea. Uh, Man, I'll, I'll just put it this way: oh. if you think if you think that you're smart enough to be that which is not moved, that which decides, come get in the back seat. Come get in the get, just in, the back get seat. in here. And oh, also, crap, guys, I'm also, in the back seat. just uh, you're okay. <laughs> oh no, we're gonna let him in with Ben. You know what? You're pretty small. Yeah. Just remember what? that you're pretty small. If you yeah. want to be your own unmoved mover. Uh, well, let me just say that I spend a lot of time reading and thinking, and uh, I don't want to be my own. You've got a lot of stuff in your life you've assumed to be true and don't have any ground for it to be true at all, and you better get started on figuring it out if that's true. If that's your point. So. Ship it. Send it. Ship it. Send it off. Upload it. Okay, Up. so, uh, okay. Ben, thank you so much. What yeah. a cool conversation. I, I At least I really enjoyed it. I um, loved it. I had a really good time. Honor, it's guys. fun having three people in here because I can think more. <laughs> yeah. More, <laughs> more time well, you have the hard job, up. Hunter. You have to drive. I yeah. do have to drive. <laughs> well, honestly, guys, thank you so much for having me on. I really love your program, and I support what you guys are doing, and I wish you all the best. Great. Hey, we have now the thank approval you, of the uh, the United States military. Okay. Ben, Ben, if people want to follow up with you or ask you a question, where do they find you, man? You can find me on the Twitter and the Instagram at TheBlondestBen. Awesome. And, of course, guys, if you haven't done so yet, please, please, please take a minute to like the show, subscribe to the show, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, We've got big, big plans, and that's a huge part of it is getting that traction. So if you could take a minute and do that for us. We would be eternally grateful. The website is carlpooling.com. You can find links to everything there. Our social, Instagram, Twitter is at carlpooling. You can find Hunter at emotionalcarl on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm, you can find Christopher at xchriscarl on no, Instagram No, you always and get it wrong. Every time. X-Carl. I love getting it wrong. It's, I love getting it wrong. That's my favorite part of the show. At chrisxcarl. Yep. Uh, I imagine one of you out there right now disagrees with us and had the tenacity to not turn off the podcast. If that's you... We're proud of you. Kevin. Uh, <laughs> then send us an email. Uh, Carpooling at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We're not going to try to strawman you or gaslight you. We'll give your argument a fair shake. If you are that person, congratulations, because that is one of the hardest things that I Seriously. try to do, is try to listen to a, an entire podcast of something I disagree. And I tell you what, every time I do, I become a better person because of it. Google so, it! Con- well, okay. <laughs> and congrats to you. That's Carpooling. We're home, so get out of the back seat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>